Hey guys, Leah Pika here. Today's guest is best known for making data storytelling more than just a flashy catchphrase in organizations across the country. Stay tuned to find out who's crashing the party on the Present Beyond Measure Show, episode 23. Welcome to the Present Beyond Measure Show, a podcast at the intersection of analytics, data visualization, and presentation awesomeness. You'll learn the best tips, tools, and techniques for creating analytics visualizations and presentations that inspire data-driven decisions and move you forward. If you're ready to get your insights understood and acted upon, you're in the right place. And now your host, Leah Pika. What's up, guys? Welcome to the 23rd episode of the Present Beyond Measure show. The fall season is in full swing. The leaves are growing redder. The nights are growing chillier. And the data viz is growing vizier. <laughs> mm, that sounded better in my head. <laughs> Sorry. So I hope you're all locking and loading on all your fun analyticizing and visualizing and presenticizing. And I just can barely contain my excitement for some of the interviews I have and the content I have coming your way. It's going to be an epic close to the year. P.S. I want to take a second to wish this podcast a very, very belated birthday. That's right. Present Beyond Measure turned one year old last August. Yes, I am late in true me fashion because pretty much the only event I was ever early for was my own birth. But that's a story for another day. You know, I'm just so, so grateful to you, my listeners, because your support has been the whole driving force behind this teeny tiny little show. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you, thank you, thank you. So what's new in my world? Well, if you're going to be in the London area the week of October 17th, please come catch me speak at the awesome Search Love Conference by Distilled. I've heard such amazing things about this event for years, and the speaker lineup includes Larry Kim from Wordstream, Will Reynolds, and my most popular podcast guest ever, Rand Fishkin of Moz. It's sure to be a stellar event, so please don't miss it if you're in town. You'll find a link to register for the event on the show notes page for this episode at leahpeka.com slash 023. And first, I want to take a moment to read another lovely review of the show on iTunes. And this is from Farasa. Great content and presentation. There's just so much data around us. And without great presentation skills, it'll be extremely challenging to get your point across. Leah's podcasts offer a lot of practical tips to hone up such skills. I mentioned to Leah that if I were to start a company today, it'd be on a visualization and presentation, and she'd be a top advisor. Ugh, wow. Such nice words, so kind, and uh, yeah, I'm there. <laughs> Time and place. <laughs> so thank you so much again for your kind words. And remember, as a show of thanks, I'll be reading out my favorite reviews to show my appreciation. And if you'd like to leave a review and get a shout out, please visit the show in iTunes and click ratings and reviews. I so appreciate it. Now let's get to today's super awesome guest. Hey, everybody. I'm pinching myself over today's guest, who is a shining star in the data visualization world. She's always had a penchant for turning data into pictures and into stories, and she honed her data visualization skills over the past decade through analytical roles in banking, private equity, and most recently at Google, where she developed and taught a course on communicating effectively with data. And today, she helps many organizations and individuals become more effective data storytellers through her awesome blog, Storytelling with Data, highly recommend it, and her acclaimed workshops. And she recently published my new number one recommended data visualization book, which is an Amazon category bestseller. I give you Cole Newsbomber Naflick. Welcome. Hi, Leah. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's it's an honor, really. So, Cole, um, I found you when I participated in the Tech Change Data Visualization course uh, offered by Ann K. Emery and Norman Shamus last year, which is an excellent course. I definitely recommend it for my listeners. And everyone was great, but your session in particular on breaking down Gestalt principles and effective data design really stood out to me because you managed to make a complex set of ideas so approachable and actually fun to learn. Um, you know, I loved your real world examples of the use of color, and we're going to get uh, into that a bit later, but your style 
really resonated with me as authoritative but balanced, you know, de-emphasizing a dogmatic approach that some of our contemporaries use <laughs> and focusing more upon, you know, practical application, which instead of a theoretical concept. And you also have a ridiculously challenging last name, which I can totally appreciate. <laughs> <laughs> no, you did it well. <laughs> yeah. And all that's awesome to hear. I mean, I, I have a lot of passion for this area, so it's fun to be able to share that with others. And that really comes through in all of the work that you do. So now that I'm done fangirling over you a bit, um, I love to hear a good origin story. Tell us a little bit about how you fell into this whole data visualization gig. Yeah. So my career started in banking, uh, in credit risk management before the subprime crisis, before anybody had any idea what credit risk management was. Uh, and banks have a tremendous amount of data. So that was a really awesome place for me to start to see how data done well can really drive decisions and help change behavior. Um, from banking, I went to an industry much less historically known for being data-driven, and that is human resources. So I joined <laughs> Google on the people analytics team. Uh, so a very data-driven company, but you don't typically think of HR as being a data-driven organization. Mm -hmm. uh, so I joined the people analytics team there when it was small, it was just forming, which was cool because it meant I got exposure to a ton of cool stuff, learning about things like what makes managers effective? How do you build a dream team? Uh, what drives attrition? Uh, also got the opportunity while I was at Google to build out a course on data visualization. And this was really cool because data visualization is always a space that I've been really interested in because I think by making data visual, you just make it so much more accessible to so many people. Uh, and so this gave me an opportunity to pause and do some research and understand why some of the things that I'd arrived at through trial and error over time were effective, right? And once, why other things were less effective. Uh, and there was broad interest in the course. So we ended up rolling it out across all of Google. So I went to different offices, taught trainers, um, taught lots of people. And it was really interesting to me to see salespeople and engineers sitting side by side in these classes. I came to realize these were really fundamental skills. They're not specific to any given role. Um, they're really not specific to any given company or industry either. So other organizations started reaching out to me, wanting me to come and teach their teams how to do this well, right? How to communicate effectively with data. And that's really where the workshops came in. So a few years ago, I left Google uh, and have been spending my time since then primarily conducting workshops where I'll go into an organization, I'll spend half a day or a day, and we'll cover the foundational lessons when it comes to effectively communicating with data. Uh, and over time, and, you know, seeing, doing this at, at hundreds of different companies, again, this sort of realization that these skills, everybody could be better at this. Um, and <laughs> these skills, they cross industries, they cross roles, uh, which is fun for me because I get exposure to a ton of interesting things. And I think it was that realization over time uh, that eventually led to the book, uh, which codifies the lessons that I teach in my workshop and goes into way more depth in terms of examples and tips and insight into the data visualization and storytelling thought process, really with a focus on practical application, right? If we think back to the course that you were talking about before, right? These aren't high in the sky sort of idealistic. This is, you know, here's a little bit of theory, but here's how you apply it uh, to, to really improve your position for success when it comes to getting your message across to your audience. And I'll be actually editing out the mention of Pi um, because we both know how we feel about <laughs> That's an amazing story. And um, I know what you mean, because I've, I've been building a teeny tiny workshop practice myself to focus on empowering digital analysts and marketers with our specific kind of data. But you're right. Looking at this, you see the systemic problem of how people enter the workforce from college, having maybe a class on PowerPoint that shows you how to animate things in, in a spiral fashion. <laughs> and they're not coming equipped to actually present information effectively. And I think it's absolutely systemic. So I think you have a huge opportunity at your doorstep and I think it's great. So this was a big year for you. You know, at time of recording, you have a precious arrival due very soon, is that right? <laughs> yeah, a couple of weeks away now. Yay, babies, <laughs> babies. But 
instead of that, you know, you welcomed another arrival in the last year, which yeah. is actually what I'd like to focus on today, which is your amazing, incredible, essential book, Storytelling with Data, same name as your blog. And um, I loved everything about it. But what I loved especially was the example of storytelling and, and practical cases for storytelling. Because I think storytelling is like this theoretical concept we all talk about and we don't exactly know what it is or how to do it, but we know it's important. But you gave the example of um, Little Red Riding Hood and the day PowerPoint came to town. And I, I just thought that was a great example of how your book stands out from a lot of the other data visualization resources that are out there. So can you elaborate on what that was exactly and, and how you can use that for your work? Sure. Uh, you know, when we think about Little Red Riding Hood specifically, right, if you just give yourself a couple of seconds to think back about this story and think about the plot and the twists and the ending. So it's an exercise that I'll often have uh, people do in my workshops. And then we'll actually recount the story. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's one person walking us through the story. Other times it's different people jumping in and like, oh, I remember it like this. Oh, I remember it like this. Uh, and it's a fun exercise. And for me, the point of the exercise is twofold to really recognize that stories, we're just we're naturally equipped to tell them and remember them. And our brains are just hardwired to resonate with stories. And so there are really powerful aspects of this that we can actually use when it comes to the stories we want to tell with our data. So Little Red Riding Hood, if we think about that specifically, you know, it's been probably some amount of time since you've given much thought to or any thought to the story of Red Riding Hood. And yet pieces of it still exist in our brains in a way that we can access and recall. And and for me, that's because of two things primarily. First off is the power of repetition, right? When you consider over the course of your life, you've probably heard that story a number of times, maybe read it a number of times, maybe told it a number of times. And there's something that happens through that repetition of use of hearing and saying and reading things multiple times that helps form a bridge from our short-term memory to our long-term memory. And the other cool thing that stories like Red Riding Hood illustrate for us is this magical combination of plot and twists and ending, which enables things to stick with us in a way that we can later recall and retell to somebody else. So in the chapter on storytelling, I talk about how we can leverage some of these concepts, the power of repetition, this combination of plot twists, ending to get the stories that we want to tell with our data to stick with our audience and to stick with them in ways that they can later recall and retell. So my strong view is, you know, facts on a page or data in a spreadsheet are not inherently memorable. Mm -hmm. But if instead of, you know, just showing data, you can embed that data in a story, stories are memorable. So it just allows us to access the memory and attention of our audience in a way that I think data without story doesn't do as effectively. Absolutely. And I think we're sort of suffering from this epidemic of meetings that we go into and we leave unchanged, uninspired, because there was nothing communicated in a way that made our brain want to actually latch on and, and do something about that. You know, I, I think that actually starts with just how the meeting is created in the beginning. Um, and actually that... Um, dovetails nicely into my next question about, you know, you would give a great strategy about using action words. Mm -hmm. I, I start this process of action words usage with our meeting invite titles. You know, like most of meeting invites you get in our industry is like a bland statement, like campaign overview, yep. rather than a call to action, like review campaign budget and decide on allocation or something like that. And I would love to quote you really quickly. So you said you should always want your audience to know or do something. If you can't concisely articulate that, you should revisit whether you need to communicate in the first place. And this can be an uncomfortable space for many. Often this discomfort seems to be driven by the belief that the audience knows better than the presenter and therefore should choose whether and how to act on the information presented that the assumption is this assumption is false. I loved that so much because we have a lot of imposter syndrome in my field where we think the client actually knows more than we do. Why are we presenting? But, you know, how, how can you help use action words to flip that around? 
Yeah. So uh, yeah, a few thoughts there. You know, one, I think that we should show data, right? People, data helps convince people. And so there's this natural desire to want to show data when we are trying to make decisions or drive change. Uh, But too many people stop there. And for me, that's not taking the full analytical process uh, sort of to its end. Uh, Because by simply showing data, we run the risk of our audience saying, oh, that's interesting, and moving on to the next (laughs) Versus if we show them data and we ask for action, right, or we recommend a decision or a change or introduce a discussion around this, our audience has to respond to that. And even in the case where they disagree with the action we're recommending, it starts a conversation. And it's a conversation that may never start if you simply show data. And I love the idea of you know naming your meetings with the using the action words there. I'm a strong advocate of doing that with any sort of titling, right? If you think of if if PowerPoint land or something similar is how you're getting your uh, message across, too often we use that title bar space for descriptive titles when really we could be using that for active titles, right? In the same way that you talk about with the meeting invites. And the effect this has is it sets the expectation in a different way for our audience uh, so that they have the right lens on as they're going to the meeting or as they're looking at this slide uh, and uh, drives towards action, uh, which I think ultimately is is the goal of any good communication is not just for informative sake, but to actually change the way people think about something or change the way they're going to do something. So my view is when we're communicating with data, we should always have that action, have that recommendation in mind, and we should do our best to make it really clear to our audience. Couldn't agree more that doing it that way puts the presenter in the position of being a partner and a subject matter expert rather than someone just slaving at their desk with data and being a courier, essentially, (laughs) of random statistics. And I think that's probably the number one mistake that I see with my clients' work is these titles that are just statements of what the slide is instead of what the visualization is actually communicating. Now, you know, one of the things I think you do so well is you talk a lot about the use of pre-attentive attributes, which Mm -hmm. if I'm phrasing this correctly, it's sort of like visual characteristics that communicate something to our brain without us realizing it. It's unconscious. Um, So my favorite, and it's one that I talk a lot about to my audience, is strategic use of color. Mm-hmm. And I love this quote from your book. When used sparingly, color is one of the most powerful tools you have for drawing your audience's attention. Resist the urge to use color for the sake of being colorful. Instead, leverage color selectively as a strategic tool to highlight the important parts of your visual. It should always be an intentional decision. And it's so funny because in my signature session for the last three years, my big statement slide at the end says, don't let Excel's pukey default color palette decide what matters <laughs> to your executives. And that one seems to really resonate. Um, so, you know, I love that you have the same philosophy. So can you talk a little bit more about how analysts can work with color effectively? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you, you've summarized it well there, but color more than anything, more than any of the other pre-attentive attributes, when you're speaking Sparing about its use can work so well to help guide your audience through where you want them to look, whether that's within a graph or within a slide or a page that contains your graph. Uh, So my personal approach is I'll typically put everything in gray at the beginning, Uh, basically push everything visually to the background because this forces me to be intentional uh, and thoughtful about where and how I draw my audience's attention to the important parts of my visual. And typically that'll mean selecting one color or maybe two colors uh, to do so. You want to stay away from using many different colors because the effect of, you lose the contrast. Uh, and you lose the ability to focus when you have a lot of different colors happening. And there are a lot of considerations when it comes to the use of color. Uh, you know, there's colorblindness that you should take into account, which means you typically don't want to be using shades of red and shades of green together because nearly 10% of the population is red, green, colorblind. Right. Uh, or color has a unique ability to impart tone on our works. So you want to think about what is the tone that I want to set with my data visualization or with my communication and how can I use color to help reinforce that? Mm-hmm. 
Uh, sometimes there are brand colors that we have to think about and incorporate. You just want to make sure if you have a brand that has five different colors in it, that absolutely does not mean you need a graph that has five different colors <laughs> in it. <laughs> I've seen that. <laughs> Uh, or if you're not working in color at all, doing everything in shades of gray and then using black really sparingly as the audience look here cue can be really uh, impactful uh, and actually look quite slick. So you just always want to be intentional with your use of color uh, and use it to indicate to your audience where they should look. You can think of it almost as helping build implicit instructions uh, of how you want your audience to focus their attention, which ends up making the uh, information you want to get across more consumable for your audience. I love that. It's like building a treasure map for their brain. Yes. Um, One of the complaints I get when I talk about this same strategy is, but my clients want more more colors. They think this looks boring. And I know it's a struggle because often our clients and managers, bosses don't know these principles either. They don't know that something's wrong, but their brain is somehow saying something is off. How do you help people or even the team bosses of people? Do you work with them to help them reframe their mindset about what's effective? Yeah, it's a great question, right? So yeah, you hear sometimes, oh, let's make it colorful, right? Or make it more visually <laughs> interesting. Or something similar I hear sometimes is, no, let's change up the graph types, right? So it's yeah. not like the bar chart. Let's make it something more interesting. <laughs> uh, so for me, I try to reframe to say, no, when it comes to the visual, when it comes to you know what graph we're using, whether and how we're using color, the point is to make things easy for our audience, to get the information across in a way that is straightforward and effective. Mm-hmm. Where we keep our audience's interest is in the story, right? When we found a way to make our information resonate with our audience, make it something that's meaningful with them that they want to pay attention to, that should be what gets and keeps our audience's attention, not our use of flashy colors or novel data visualizations. So it's a, it's a reframing of what we actually want our audience to get out of it, which is the message more than anything else. Uh, And, you know, making things colorful or choosing novel but ineffective graph types, those get in the way of getting our message across, not help it. Uh, So I think it's reframing the goal of the communication in the first place can be one thing that can help battle some of those um, uh, not well-founded desires. (laughs) So you're saying my exploding 3D donut chart would not be a good way to change things up? Uh, I would recommend against that. Oh, darn it. Okay, fine. Scrap the whole thing. So, um, no, I completely, everything makes so much sense. And I, I think that's a fantastic mindset shift, um, for the audience. So there's a lot of controversy in this sort of seedy underbelly of data viz. I've noticed. <laughs> I didn't know it had a seedy underbelly. <laughs> I, I, that's what I'm seeing. So, um, you know, you're helping to lead the charge against pie chart abuse, which is great. And I think that that's starting to become like a standard thing that's known. But some of your other guidelines, I think most people don't know about yet. So one example is the dual axis chart, which I see in almost every dashboard and presentation in my field because the space is at a premium and you want to shove as many data points in one limited space. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, dual y-axis, so where you have a a y-axis on both the left and the right-hand side of your graph, they're inherently challenging because no matter how well things are labeled and titled, there's always some grappling that happens at the beginning of looking at a dual-axis graph where you're trying to figure out which data do I read against which axis. Mm -hmm. And my view is, in general, we should be trying to identify anything that feels like work like that for our audience and take it away so that our audience doesn't have to do work to get it information. Uh, so I generally recommend against the dual y-axis. And now the, the use case for it is typically when there's an x-axis, a horizontal axis that you want to leverage across two different variables that are not in the same scale, so they can't be shown on the same axis. And so when that's the challenge, there are two alternatives, uh, potential al- alternatives that I recommend. And I talk about each of these in the book. Uh, but one is show your main axis on the left-hand side. And then with the data that belongs on the secondary axis, just don't show that secondary axis and instead label the data points directly. So you're able to, in that way, put both series on the same graph, but really title and label everything directly and avoid that confusion. 
Another potential is to actually pull the data apart into two graphs, uh, but position them so they actually look like a single visual, where you're leveraging the same x-axis across both of them, but each graph has its own y-axis on the left-hand side, mm -hmm. uh, which allows you, again, to title and label everything directly. And now, which you choose between the two of these depends on the level of specificity that your audience needs to have with the actual data points, right? If if you want them to know the specific points, then label those points directly. If you'd rather they focus on bigger picture trends or relationships or the shape of the data, then preserve the axis and mm. don't label the points directly. This makes a little more sense when you see an example, uh, and, and there uh, are examples in the book. A third potential is if there is a way to rescale so that you can put both of the data series that you want to show together on the same scale. Mm -hmm. um, that's another potential, uh, though that's not always possible. Now with rescaling, but putting on the same, do you ever find that there are possibly correlations implied where there might not be one? That's a great point. Anytime you're using sort of any of these alternatives that I've just talked through, where you're leveraging the same horizontal x-axis across multiple variables or multiple dimensions, you are implying that there's some reason for doing that. You're implying that there is a relationship between them. So you always want to gut check and make sure that that makes sense. Because if it doesn't, then you definitely want to break them into two separate graphs. So only when the two metrics are absolutely related in some way. When they're related or if they somehow move together or one helps you understand something about the other, these are all reasons that uh, that could make sense to put them on the, the same x-axis. But yeah, you definitely want to gut check that <laughs> to make sure it makes sense. Of course. And you know, it's very rare, I think, when we take two of these metrics and ask, is one informing on how we understand the other? Or is it just a random pairing up? Right. And I think that what we see more often is the latter, but I, that's a great perspective. So that's, thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. So another big debate, CD underbelly is zero axis, um, in terms of bar charts versus line charts. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, so a bar chart must have a baseline of zero because the way our eyes are comparing the relative endpoints of the bars, you actually need the context of the full bar there in order to do that accurately. If we cut off a portion of the bars, we've just invalidated that visual comparison. Uh, with line graphs, you can get away with zooming uh, and uh, not starting your y-axis at zero. And the reason is because with lines, we are more interested in or more focusing on the relative points in space not their position relative to an axis. And as you zoom mathematically, the slopes, the, the, the relationship between the slopes stays the same. Um, you do definitely want to take context into account though still and make sure you're not over zooming and making minor changes look like a really huge deal. Right. But there certainly are use cases for this, right? If we think of the field of you know epidemiology or drug efficacy where tiny, tiny numbers and tiny differences in tiny numbers mean a huge deal, right? If the, the death rate is 0 0.007 and goes to 0 0.008, that's massive. Right. So you, you, there are cases where you want to be able to do that sort of zooming. Um, you just always want to be taking context into account and again, never with a bar chart. Right. You know, your body temperature is going to stay extremely finite range and even the tiniest fluctuation could mean something's off. But I think it's important, like you said, in terms of misleading, it's about how we're communicating and the authenticity of what we're communicating. So using it to mislead is big no-no. Right. Yeah. I would say the golden rule of data visualization is don't lie with data visualization. <laughs> um, but also it's a dangerous space because a discerning audience will be able to see that there's an issue and poke holes in it. And then you've lost any credibility that you had going in. Oh man, I know that for sure. You post anything about this in the space and you're kind of opening <laughs> yourself up for uh, being, you know, the hole poking, but uh, it's true. This, this is an extremely discerning audience. And, you know, that's actually a perfect segue into someone else who's somewhat discerning about this topic. You recently had lunch with someone. He's a, what, a relative unknown in the date of his world. Oh wait, it was Stephen Few. <laughs> <laughs> Did I say some sarcasm? Um, no, he, he's he's as big as it gets. But yeah. uh, I think what people want to know is what is he like? 
Well, so it's interesting. He was like a super nice guy, invited me out to lunch. We had a really nice lunch in Berkeley and it was really very pleasant. Uh, but he likes to debate. Uh, <laughs> and that's not a bad thing. It's actually a fun thing. It's just something that I think not very many people are used to is this sort of, uh, you know, healthy debate of people disagreeing on topics about which they're passionate. Uh, so when we got done lunching or at the end of our lunch, he asked me, he says, you know, there are a few things that we disagree on. Like our, our approaches in general were fairly well aligned, but there are some places of disagreement. Would, would you be interested in talking about some of those? Oh, I sure. would <laughs> <laughs> not knowing exactly what I'd get myself into. Um, but yeah, no, it's been fun. So, you know, to your point, there's kind of a bit of a controversy stirring over on your blog and his blog. I think it sort of originated over your stacked bar chart example, yeah. but it kind of blossomed into a, a deeper fundamental philosophical debate on the question of, is there always one right chart for each kind of data? Or is there a degree of personal choice in the matter that allows you to control that message and, and let the message sign? So I'd love to get your take on that. Yeah, and, and, and you're right. So the, the debate kind of um, shifted over time uh, in realizing that actually one of the things underlying our different views was just a fundamental different view in terms of there being a, a correct or a best uh, answer in a given situation. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I'll, I'll try to paraphrase uh, Stephen's views accurately, so hopefully I get this. Uh, <laughs> but his, his basic view is that anything that can be informed by science should be, right? If we know that a bar chart is easier to read in a, in a certain situation, then we should use that and that there shouldn't be any debate about that. And that the only place where, you know, what we might call personal choice would come into play is that portion where science has not been conclusive. Mm -hmm. I tend to look at things differently. Uh, I I, for me, data visualization sits at an intersection between art and science. Uh, he hates this uh, explanation, <laughs> uh, but it's just okay. I'm going to keep going with it. Yep. Uh, I think part of part of his uh, hesitancy with it is that what different people consider art uh, will will vary very greatly, potentially from person to person. Mm -hmm. But I'm actually okay with that. Uh, so for me, you know, there are absolutely there is science. There are best practices. There are guidelines, uh, and we should follow those. But there is also an artistic component, uh, meaning two different people approaching the same data visualization challenge may come away with totally different solutions. And I actually think that's okay. I think that that's one of the reasons this space is cool, because it allows for diversity of perspectives, diversity of approaches, allows there to be some creativity. You just don't want to uh, use your artistic license to make the information more difficult for your audience to get at. So my view is we should always be maximizing for effectiveness when it comes to getting the message across to our audience that we want them to know. Uh, but when it comes to some of these finer decisions about how do you show something, Thing, you know, where do you draw attention? Where do you annotate or tell story? I absolutely think there's room for uh, differing approaches there. And that's exactly what I mean about you having a balanced practical approach. Because, you know, a bit, maybe a year ago, I sort of self for this health crisis where I was trying to find science to explain what it was wrong with me, science that would prove the number one best way for me to heal. And what I found is that science can be a little bit of a moving target, yeah. you know, and I'm not saying that there's going to be some study that shows bar charts are ineffective. That's not, not going to happen. But what I love is it's about testing it and seeing what is actually working in a real live capacity, because I think science can only take us so far. And you're absolutely right. I, I think of it this way with the, my bullet point philosophy. So, you know, I banished bullet points from my presentations and I was giving that dogma during my sessions. And I was getting a lot of pushback because people were like, it's, I can't practically put one or two words on a slide with an image for this kind of presentation. Sometimes yeah. I have a list, it's just not practical. So I, I develop and tested my better bullet point solution method, and that'll be on the show notes page for this episode. But it was a way of animating in bullet points one at a time and dimming the prior ones so that you're still leveraging attributes to divert your attention to what I'm speaking to and I'm pacing you. Mm -hmm. But it's finding that happy medium. And I have not found a single detraction in my scores or the effectiveness 
of my presentations from using that, even though bullet points are just like the pariah of <laughs> the presentation. <laughs> well, there will world. always be constraints in our environment, right? Constraints that your manager says, no, I want to see that in a pie chart or no, we need to have those four graphs on a slide. And, and there's, you know, we don't work in sort of a, a perfect world. And so a lot of what we talk about, I think, when it comes to data vis- visualization practices are, you know, best practices in the ideal perfect scenario, but there's reality that has to play into it as well. And I think that's also where some of these trade-offs happen of figuring out now, given the constraints with which I work or in which I work, you know, what my manager's telling me I have to do, the amount of time I have, the experience with the tools I have, what I feel comfortable doing in my tools, then it's about how do you take as much of this stuff as you can and apply it in a way that's going to make sense given those constraints. Absolutely. Love it. So another post that you recently wrote, which I love, and I actually wrote a companion to that, which is coming out soon, um, is about handouts. The idea of avoiding what Gar Reynolds calls the slidement, mm-hmm. which is this terrible midpoint between live presentation slides and a leave behind. What is your perspective on why you don't email your live presentation slides? Uh, so for me, a, a control freak by nature, um, but then also, you know, wanting to be thoughtful and be intentional about how you walk your audience through your story. For me, those two different use cases ha- require very different types of product, right? So when you have your live presentation, your slides are sparse. They're just backing up what you're saying because you, the, the presenter, are there to speed up, to slow down, to pause, to answer questions, to go into more or less detail based on your knowledge of of the subject matter uh, versus a document that gets sent around, right? Either as a pre-read or as a leave behind or something that's sent to the people who miss the meeting that requires a much higher level of detail because you as the narrator are not there to do the voiceover. Uh, and so the latest post that you talk about just talks about a couple potential alternatives to these. My view is ideally they're two totally separate things, right? Sparse presentation slides for the live meeting and a denser, more report-like document for the thing that gets sent around. But practically, that doesn't often happen, uh, mainly because of time constraints. Um, But the good news is there's still some uh, approaches and strategies that you can leverage when that's the dilemma that you're facing. Great. And all of those resources are going to be on the show notes page for this episode. So another very common question that I get is, what is your weapon of choice to create your data visualizations? And does that Does that choice change between a live presentation or other formats like email? Yeah. So for me, it doesn't necessarily. Um, All of the examples uh, in the book and actually the majority of my work when it comes to visualizing data, I do in Excel. And I use Excel primarily because it's what my clients are using. It's pervasive. So anybody can sort of get their hands on it and play with it. Uh, So a couple of points there. Uh, One is that you don't have to have fancy tools to do this well. You can visualize data effectively uh, in pretty much any tool. It's about knowing the best practices. uh, And my advice in general is pick a tool, get to know it as best you can so that it doesn't become a limiting factor when it comes to applying some of the best practices. Uh, And you can do pretty much anything in just plain old Excel. It doesn't have to be fancy, uh, but it does take some massaging to get uh, the visualization from the starting point to an effective graph. And I think people are very set it and forget it, like one click and I'm done sort of thing. Yeah. And that for me has always been interesting because if you think of the full analytical process, you start off with a question or hypothesis, then you have to gather the data, then you clean the data, then you analyze the data. And at that point, it is really easy you know, for your one-click thing to stick it in a graph and be done with it. Wherein that graph is the only part of the whole process that your audience ever sees. Mm-hmm. So the graph deserves at least as much attention as these other steps in the process. Um, because whether it should or not, it it says things about the level of detail and robustness that was done at the other steps of the analytical process. And that's really the opportunity for you to make it say good things and for you to get that message across. Uh, So expect the communication part of the analytical process to take time and to take more time than you think it should, because it does take more time than you think it should to do it well. I love that. And, you know, in our field, we're all about the latest data visualization tool and everyone loves Tableau. I, I, I like Tableau for exploration, but it's true that 
just like PowerPoint, I would say we want to kind of skip over learning the foundation of using the tools that we have at our disposal anywhere we go well, because we think that these newfangled tools are somehow going to solve the PowerPoint or yeah, Excel no problem. tool knows the story. That, that, <laughs> that's where it takes the person coming in and making these design decisions uh, to make that story clear to an audience. I love that. No tool knows your story. I'm going to put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> so another fantastic tip that you gave towards the end of your book was to identify an individual on your team who is interested in data viz and invest in them so they can become your in-house expert. I love this feedback because this is kind of what inadvertently happened to me in my own organization, but I didn't even really sell myself as much as I could have that way. I was kind of known as the viz police, like don't put that pie there, but I could have definitely helped my organization at a much bigger scale. So I think that's a fantastic way to grow that competency and facilitate skill growth. So what would you say to like a manager of someone like that to help grow that competency? Yeah. I mean, for me, the organizations that I've seen do this really well, they do a couple of things. They invest uh, in a way to upskill everybody, right? And and especially give people a common language to use when it comes to best practices around communicating with data. Uh, But also to your point, I think it's important to have somebody ideally internally to whom individuals can turn when they're facing challenges or when they want feedback. And so if you have somebody who's interested in data visualization, uh, even better if they've already shown some, uh, you know, natural ability there, then invest in those folks. Um, cause it can be beneficial both as a career development opportunity for the individual, right? Think about what books might be helpful or courses they could take or other, um, things that they could do, uh, when it comes to, uh, making their skills stronger. Uh, and then they become a great internal expert for the rest of your team. So you have somewhere to send people who are struggling with a particular challenge or who maybe aren't, uh, haven't found the right way to get the information across uh, that's going to create that magical aha moment that graphs done well can do. Uh, so there are a lot of benefits to grooming somebody uh, in-house to be your internal data visualization expert. That's so great. I, I think that our whole practice in our community would advance if organizations recognize and nurture a competency like that. So it's great advice. So other than your wonderful book, if you had to point my listeners to just one resource, one other resource to get started on this path that helped you, what would it be? Oh, the, the single, the singularity of that question is so challenging for me because it's so great. <laughs> great resources out there, sort of depending on your specific challenge. But if I really had to narrow it down to one, I think for me, everything when it comes to success in visualizing data and in communicating with data, for me, it comes back to your audience and who are they? How do you resonate with them? How do you make your message something they care about? How do you get it across to them? You know, how do you design in a way it's easy for them to see? Uh, so if I'm thinking about audience specifically here, one book that I'll recommend is Resonate by mm. Nancy Duarte. And for me, this is a, a go-to resource. It's a quick read, right? And you can sort of, once you've gone through it once, uh, it's organized in a way that you can flip through and just um, look at your sections of interest. But it really, uh, for me, helped with that paradigm shift. Of It's really easy to create a graph or create a PowerPoint presentation for myself or for my project or for my data, when really every time we're doing that, it shouldn't be for any of those things. It should be for our audience because our whole point is our whole goal in communicating with data is to get something across to our audience. Uh, so she goes into um, great detail on you know getting to know your audience, getting to understand what's motivating them, thinking about how to make that paradigm shift and really be keeping your audience in mind throughout the whole process. Uh, and so for me, that would be one highly recommended go-to resource. It's excellent. And her companion to that, Slideology, um, her audience needs map is one of my absolute go-tos, part of my process for if I'm doing a new conference engagement, which is mapping out and creating an avatar of your audience, essentially. So you can picture them, you can picture their struggle and they're staring at you going, help me. And I, I think that that's something that in general presentations, we could all do a better job of mm-hmm. um, in, in serving that. So I love that. Audience is always king. 
I call the next segment the upgrade, which is a power tip for Excel, PowerPoint, or the other tools that we use in our trade. So I expect you must have something juicy for us. Well, it's funny because I was thinking about this of like, oh yeah, what great tip do I have to share? Like, <laughs> I don't know if I have anything kind of crazy cool for this piece. So I had a couple of thoughts. So first off is the paintbrush, which most people probably know the paintbrush functionality, whether it's in Excel or PowerPoint, uh, where you can highlight something and use the paintbrush to apply that same formatting to something else. It took me an embarrassingly long uh, time to recognize that me this too. was there. Uh, <laughs> So I'll just point that out for anybody who doesn't know what I'm talking about, <laughs> look it up immediately, uh, paintbrush feature in PowerPoint or Excel. Uh, for me, um, I think one insight that's maybe a little less obvious than that one, uh, I use animation frequently and not animation in the way that most people think about it. Uh, so oftentimes I'll take an audience through a graph where we start off with just a blank graph that maybe only has the axes on it so that I can talk about what we're going to be looking at and hold my audience's attention for that before showing any actual data. And this actually leverages some interesting things from storytelling as well. There's this like anticipation, right? Because they don't know what's coming next and they actually can't jump to the data and get distracted because I haven't even shown it to them yet. And then I'll do, I'll show one at a time, multiple iterations of this same graph where maybe a point appears and I talk about it and then a trend comes on and I talk about it and then another trend comes on and talk about it. So basically animating the appearance of these graphs one by one, uh, which takes a bit of time. Uh, and you also, everything needs to be lined up exactly perfectly so you don't get graphs like bouncing around as you're <laughs> going between uh, views. Uh, so my trick for that is, I create all my graphs in Excel and then I paste them one at a time as images onto the same PowerPoint slide. Mm -hmm. This puts them all in exactly the same position so I don't get any of that weird bouncing around. And then I can select them all and resize them or put them where I want them. And then I copy and paste each one individually on their own individual slides. So mm. instead of actually animating the appearance and the disappearance in PowerPoint, I'm flipping through different slides and each slide has a different iteration of this graph. Just makes it so if you do have to go back and make changes later, it's easier to get to those um, sort of what otherwise would be buried in an animation uh, version of it. Uh, and when you've done this right, the final version is uh, a seamless experience for your audience in terms of you're clicking through, you're talking about the context and the environment and all the interesting points of your story and drawing your audience's attention exactly to where you want them to look. And they don't even recognize that it's you know Excel or PowerPoint that they're looking at because they're uh, involved at that point in the storytelling, uh, which can be an awesome way to combine and use, I think, Excel and PowerPoint. PowerPoint together very effectively. Using the dramatic animated build, I think is one of the top under leveraged strategies for data storytelling and, and presenting. And what I actually do is I'll, I may build it on one slide, but I strategically use white boxes that animate in or out. Yeah. So that brute force way. Right. Exactly. So I'm in control, but you're right. If you're changing your headline of each slide to reflect how that story is building, then, then building that out. But I love your idea of making it one big piece and then splitting it so that you don't have the, the little jumping around, which can completely distract people. Totally. Totally. Fantastic. I love it. So this is our last question. Think hard here. It's my favorite. Imagine this scenario. You're at home watching Top Chef while preparing a decadent double chocolate souffle with a pistachio emulsion. When you suddenly trip and fall through a rip in time and you're brought back to the precise moment you're about to give your first presentation, what would present you say to past you? Oh, that's a good one. I, you kind of got me distracted with the chocolate souffle. <laughs> I know I'm hungry. <laughs> you know, for me, and this is this is maybe a slightly random one and wouldn't apply to everybody, but I would say, Cole, don't shift back and forth from foot to foot. That is so distracting <laughs> for an audience. Uh, which I'll parlay into one last piece of advice, which is if you are well, rather whether or not you're presenting in front of large audiences, record yourself presenting at some point because you see things that you're just not even aware that you're doing. And for me, one of these moments seeing myself recorded was I was shifting my weight back and forth from mm. foot to foot. And I had no idea that I was doing it, but seeing myself do it, it was so incredibly distracting. Uh, so yeah, don't shift your weight and record yourself giving a talk so that you can uh, catch some of these things and improve your effectiveness over time. 
Absolutely fantastic advice. Uh, when I first watched myself uh, after recording, I noticed I had I was afflicted with monkey arms. They were just flailing <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> it was I've unusually long arms, um, and you only know that by being your own critic and watching yourself. So absolutely fantastic advice. Uh, Cole, I could talk to you forever, <laughs> but unfortunately we've run out of time. And I just want to thank you again for your time today, for so much information you've dropped, but you're also a huge inspiration to me and so many analysts in the field. And especially as a woman, you know, there's a growing dialogue in my space about the women in analytics. And um, it recently occurred to me that many of the top minds right now in DataViz are yourself, Anne K. Emery, Stephanie Evergreen. I think that's just fantastic. And I just really appreciate everything you represent. Awesome. That's fantastic to hear. Thanks so much for having me today, Leah. Thanks. It's been a pleasure and congrats again on all your wonderful arrivals. Thank you. Oh, this is why I love my job. Cole dropped so much knowledge on us today and I'm just always in awe of the opportunities to meet the people that have influenced my career and my philosophy on what I do so much. It's one of the greatest gifts, but really the gift in it is being able to get you, the listeners, a front row seat at getting to know these amazing minds and hearing about their journeys. And I just, for me, that is the greatest gift I could possibly think of giving to you. So thank you for continuing with me on this journey. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Present Beyond Measure show. If you've liked what you've heard, hop on over to iTunes to subscribe, leave a rating and review. And you know, those reviews are so appreciated because they affect the rankings of the show. And I'll be reading out my faves on future episodes. To catch all of the resources mentioned, please visit leahpika.com slash 023 to review the show notes, um, get all the links, register for stuff, um, get Cole's book. And I would love if you could leave me a comment or suggestions because I want to hear about the challenges you face when presenting information, doing data viz, lightning fast, and anything else you'd like me to talk about here. And of course, if you or your team is ready to take your analytics presenting skills to a whole new level, please book me for a private workshop, which is my entire toolbox for creating presentations for lasting impact. More details are available at leahpika.com workshop. And today's presentation inspiration is from Cole's fantastic book, and that is Having all the information in the world at our fingertips doesn't make it easier to communicate. It makes it harder. I would add that, while this is true, we are so fortunate to have sage guides like Cole to lead us in making this journey easier for us every single day. That's it for now. Namaste. And that's a wrap. Awesome. That was so great. <laughs> you know, like, I'm not cutting out or anything. I okay. just might be trying to... That's the flipping baby. Thank you. First, so we're going to take a few detours. Great stuff. Yay. Okay. Okay.